Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So we have almost reached the end of our summer worship series about unrealistic expectations that Christians encounter and their origins. And today we're talking about rather a hot button issue. We're going to talk about whether or not Christians can drink alcohol, which if you've been paying attention to the liturgy, you're probably already confused. Because Romans said what? Exactly. That's why it's in the bulletin. You can read it later. But it's in there, and it says, you know, you can't be a stumbling block. There is no unclean thing. So technically, you could drink alcohol, but then if it causes problems, then you can't. And then you have Timothy. Don't just drink wine, uh, drink water, drink a little wine. And if that weren't confusing enough, I'm going to read you more scripture that will leave you reeling. But first, what Jesus ends up saying to those that have gathered is, you know, you're never happy. It doesn't really matter. God has brought forth two ends of a spectrum here. And the first is John the Baptist, who had lived his entire life as a Nazarite, which is something that was very unique and not typically done. Naz- living as a Nazarite was a temporary vow people took, sometimes for a month or a few months, but never their entire lives. And John just didn't live differently. He looked differently. Not a lot of people were walking around wearing suits made out of camel hair and eating locusts and honey. And so John was definitely an extreme end of the abstinence spectrum. And he didn't drink and he didn't eat bread. He didn't eat a lot of the things that Jews ate, much less people of the Middle East. And the people looked at him and said, he is so weird, he has to be possessed by a demon. There is something not right about that man. Meanwhile, they neglected to pay attention to why a Nazarite lives without drinking wine It's because when he utters prophetic things, he didn't want to have any reason to suspect him of being drunk. When he had visions and he was able to convey the word of the Lord, nobody had any reason to doubt that he was fully sober because he never drank. And then there was Jesus, and he refers to himself by one of his titles, Son of Man. He's referring to his humanity in this moment rather than Son of God, his divinity. And he says, you know, the Son of Man comes eating and drinking like all of you. And I still can't win because what you say to me is, look, he's, he eats so much, he's a glutton, and he drinks so much, people assume that he's a drunkard. And if that weren't enough, look at who he hangs out with, tax collectors and sinners. Nobody liked what Jesus did. He was too much of a partier. You got John the Baptist who ain't going to take you to a party, and even if you went to his party, you weren't going to eat. And then you've got Jesus who's out here with everybody, and they think that that's inappropriate too. And he says, you're like these children of the marketplace. You're just not happy. It really doesn't matter. You expect everybody to be like you rather than looking to see what it is that God is asking for. And as Christians throughout time, we have asked ourselves, what is it that God wants from us regarding alcoholic consumption? What is God's expectation? And like good Christians, we think, let's just look at the Bible. Okay. Well, we've already started that, and that's not been very helpful, so let's just make it worse, shall we? Let's go all the way back to Leviticus. If we go back to Leviticus, there we find that the instruction is given in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 8, and the Lord spoke to Aaron, the first high priest, 
Drink no wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons, when you enter the tent of meeting, that you may not die. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. You are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. And so some people have said, there you go, God said you're not allowed to drink. Especially if you're clergy, you're not allowed to drink. But what is actually being said here is that God is telling Aaron, his sons, and their children thereafter, because this was a genealogy of priesthood, that they couldn't go to work having been drinking. Because their job depended on them, just like the vow of the Nazarite, being clear and sober so that nobody could say, well, what they're saying isn't true and it's not of God because they've been drinking. Instead, they were required to go into the tent of meeting, otherwise known as the tabernacle, and then later on this would be the temple. They have to go in fully sober. And it's so that they could continue to be holy and upright and that people would have faith in what it is they were saying and doing. If we skip a little bit forward to Numbers, which is still within the Torah, the holiest part of the Hebrew Bible for our Jewish brethren, we find it says there at chapter 6, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When either men or women make a special vow, the vow of the Nazarite, to separate themselves to the Lord, they shall separate themselves from wine and strong, strong drink. They shall drink no wine vinegar or other vinegar and shall not drink any grape juice or eat grapes fresh or dried. All their days as Nazarites, they shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. And so here we find that this is precisely what was governing John the Baptist, that he was a lifelong Nazarite, which is something that you don't see a lot. In fact, Samson, one of our judges, was supposed to be a lifelong Nazarite. And if you don't know anything about Samson, it didn't work. And it's hard to do this because the culture is so infused with wine drinking at the time. So not only could they not drink wine, but they couldn't have wine vinegar or gall, that same thing that was offered to Jesus on the cross, nor could they have grape juice. Because in those days, the temperature kept grape juice from staying grape juice very long. You could start out a meal and a celebration with grape juice, and by the end of the day, it's not grape juice anymore, it's fermented. And so you didn't want to be there at that moment it turns, so you abstained altogether. In fact, if you are so focused on fulfilling a vow as being a Nazarite, you won't even eat grapes or raisins. You'll stay away from all of that. And we know through a prison ministry that you can take raisins and make wine. So, yeah, <laughs> that's why you can't send oatmeal raisin cookies to Kairos. Because you can do that. So you have to stay away from these sort of things. So if we're just looking here in the Torah, we might think to ourselves, okay, no alcohol, right? No alcohol. We should just stay away from it. But if we move a little bit closer to the New Testament, if we get to the book of Proverbs, it says in Proverbs 31, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to drink strong drink, or else they will drink and forget what has been decreed and will pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. <laughs> this may or may not be helpful. <laughs> then, of course, you've already heard First Timothy, right? First Timothy said, No longer drink only water, but take a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So you can find whatever you want to find in the scriptures. If you're looking for reasons not to drink, we have them. If you're looking for reasons to drink, cheers. 
We've got them. But it's like anything else in the scriptures. If you are looking for reasons to hate people, you can find it in the scriptures. If you're looking for reasons to abandon your hate and embrace other people in the name of Jesus Christ and love, you can find it. You can pervert scripture any way that you want. You can use it to uphold and undergird, or you can use it to tear down and destroy. You can use scripture in any way. But let's be honest, we live in a world where alcohol consumption is something that we confront probably daily, at least here in Crozet. We could run a tap from Star Hill to our fellowship hall. And you can't go very far in Crozet and in Albemarle County without hitting multiple breweries, wineries, distilleries, ABC stores. You can get alcohol readily. You can get it at most of our restaurants. You can find it in all of our grocery stores. It's not hard to come up against alcohol. So the question, the impetus for us is, what do we do about it? Are we called to engage in this? Is there a way to engage in it that's healthy or not? And the answer is a difficult one because the answer is different for every single one of us. And that's hard. Now, we could try to make this easy. There's certainly Christian denominations that have. There are denominations that say, nobody's drinking. Nobody. And then there are denominations that say, hey, we can all drink. We just have to be reasonable. We just have to be responsible. And we have to figure it out. And in Methodism... It's even more confusing because our book of discipline, which is our law book, our rule book, which as you'll notice is significantly thinner than my Bible, yes, hallelujah, says this under our social principles in, in paragraph 162. We affirm our long-standing support of abstinence from alcohol as a faithful witness to God's liberating and redeeming love for persons. So we do affirm people who choose to abstain from alcohol. We recognize that in doing so, they are actually providing witness to God's liberating, redeeming love. That people don't have to be enslaved to alcohol. They don't have to be enslaved to alcoholism or social and cultural practices. That they can be liberated from that. And we as the body of Christ will affirm that for them. We will support them in that. And some of us will need to engage with them in that. But it also goes on. It says, with regard to those who choose to consume alcoholic beverages... Judicious use with deliberate and intentional restraint with Scripture as a guide. So that if we choose to engage in the consumption of alcohol, that is incumbent upon us to do so thoughtfully, intentionally, and always with restraint. Not to binge drink and not to drink to the point where we stop having control of our rational mind and we say and do things that are hurtful and destructive, that we engage in behavior that can not only place others at risk but culminate in suffering, violence, and death. That's incumbent upon us. And Methodism has long been a part of this dialogue and the struggle with alcoholism. There was a Methodist woman out of New York by the name of Frances Willard, and she was struggling with what she saw alcohol consumption doing to people in the United States at the time. She looked out and she saw how it was destroying some families, it was destroying individuals, their health, their relationships. It was manifesting itself to the point of almost being a social evil. And so she took her voice and her mind and her faith and she became not only the national president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, but she later went on to become the leader of the National Prohibition Party which was directly responsible for the passage and the ratification and adoption of the 18th Amendment in 1919, which, of course, brought along prohibition. The women had often had this place in the discussion about recognizing what happened 
when alcohol was freely distributed and how it affected people negatively. And so they thought that as people of the faith that they needed to do something to help protect people. Well, we know that prohibition didn't exactly work. The 21st Amendment repealed it. But we still struggle nonetheless. And we want to know what we're supposed to do. How do we engage with this? Is it permissible or is it not? And it requires of us something that most of us intensely dislike. It requires us to specifically ask God the question and use all of our means of spiritual discernment. It requires us to pray, to tell God our true feelings, sometimes to confess how we feel about alcohol and hear God's response. It requires us to search the scriptures because maybe some of these scriptures, and there's even more, maybe some of them speak so clearly to us that they resonate in the depths of our being and we can hear God speaking to us in those texts. Or maybe we need to engage in the gift of discernment in, in community, that we ask our family and our friends or even our family of faith, what happens if you see me drink? What kind of person do I become? What kind of behavior do I exhibit? Because our culture glamorizes alcohol consumption. We are teaching consequent generations that there is something wonderful to be had in drinking. And we also know that there is something deadly and destructive to be had in it too. And in that tension, we find ourselves today. What are we supposed to do? Now, for some of us, it's very clear. Some of us have already experienced that we cannot and should not be drinking alcohol. Some of us don't have a problem with drinking alcohol. And so we have to give special credence to the passage in Romans that says that we have to make sure that we're not becoming a stumbling block to another person. We have to struggle and, and constantly be aware of who is with us and what their needs are. And are we helping other people or are we so focused on the fact that we want that glass of wine? Where do we find ourselves? And it's an intensely personal discussion and an exploration. I come from two sides of the polar extreme. My mother's side of the family, there's a long line of alcoholics. Every generation had at least one. And so we knew what would happen. My mother grew up the child of an alcoholic. And she watched his, his consumption not only consumed him, but it consumed their finances. She watched as it destroyed relationships within the family and in the neighborhood. She watched as it destroyed his health. And she knew what that was like. And then when she grew to be of the age of consumption, she also noticed tendencies in herself. And so she had to radically address how she engaged or didn't engage with alcohol. And my father's side of the family of the German stock, they just didn't engage with alcohol at all. Partially because of the era in which they grew up. It wasn't part of their culture. And um, when they were young adults in the, in the Great Depression, they didn't have the money to go get drunk. And so they just didn't engage in it. It was just part, wasn't part of the discussion. Never saw my grandparents drink ever. And there was nothing to say because they weren't going to tolerate it. They just weren't going to drink. And they liked the fact that there were plenty of people where they were that just didn't agree with alcohol. But my grandfather on my mother's side, he used to tell a great joke. I want to share this joke with you. As a deacon in the Southern Baptist Church, this is a joke he used to tell. What's the difference between a Baptist and a Methodist? A Methodist will say hi in the ABC story. Now, my grandfather, being a deacon in the Southern Baptist Church, and not a very good deacon, let's just be honest, uh, he wouldn't go to the ABC store. He sent my Methodist grandmother to the ABC store. Right? So he knew that there was something not right there. He knew there was something not right. And so he made her party to it, right? She'll go get whatever it is that he wants to drink. 
And the thing is, if every time you get near and around and engage with alcohol, you start to feel ashamed or people start to like edge away from you, that is something powerful that you need to pay attention to, right? If you're embarrassed to be drinking alcohol, then maybe there's a reason why. Maybe there's something that's going on there that tells us that we shouldn't be drinking alcohol. The United Methodist Church has a long-standing respect for people who say, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to do that. We are required to uphold that sanctity, as a matter of fact. It is stipulates in the Book of Discipline that you may not sell or consume alcohol on Methodist property. If we were to have a wedding in here and then adjourn to the fellowship hall for the reception, they could not have a champagne toast. Which is also why, in our communion, you'll notice that we only use grape juice. Because we recognize that there are children and teenagers and young adults and adults that shouldn't be exposed to alcohol. That even the small amount that you might get from tincting in the cup could turn some people into a raging alcoholic in a struggle. And because we want to honor the sanctity of recovery and for some people abstinence for all time, we will not be part of that, entering into that. Now, there are Christians that have struggled with this, certainly because Welsh's grape juice didn't come into existence until the last hundred years. So there were people that certainly struggled with it when it was introduced. And by the way, there was a very wealthy Methodist in New Jersey by the name of Welsh's that made it possible for us to offer alcohol-free communion. And so as we have this option, people struggled with it at first. There were plenty of Methodist Episcopal churches, the predecessor to the United Methodist Church, that said, Jesus drank wine, John Wesley used wine when he officiated communion, and we're using wine too. This was especially prevalent in the southern churches because we value tradition. And so they didn't want to engage with the conversation of, well, maybe we should offer something else. And then it became so normative now that it's almost taboo to even talk about reintroducing wine. Now, it does stipulate that if we were to offer wine for communion, we would have to offer both grape juice and wine, and there would have to be something visibly distinguishing the chalice that had the wine. So when I was at seminary at Drew, the chalice with the wine had a big red ribbon on it, tied on it, a bow, so that you could see that that one had it. And then that would require that for every station you have a grape juice and a wine. I mean, it can get crazy up here. And so really, we err on the side of abstinence in the church. We tend to err on that side. But the fact is that we have a culture where people are engaging in alcohol. And depending on your cultural background, your family background, you might have been raised to engage with alcohol. I used to be married into a New York Italian family. They were deeply engaged with alcohol. Some of them made their own wine. Wine was a part of every meal. I mean, you couldn't have a leftover meatball sandwich without having a glass of Chianti. It was part of their culture, and sometimes to the detriment of certain individuals in the family. And we struggle with that. We struggle with the fact that there are those who cannot control themselves around alcohol. There are some who alcohol unleashes something deep within them that should never be unleashed for that person. It causes them pain and suffering, and it causes pain and suffering for others. And so we have to constantly judge each individual situation. Now, I also know that some of us are aware of what it might look like if we're out engaging in alcohol consumption. There are plenty of times that I've been out over at Pro Reynada and I encounter a church member and they start hiding their beer behind their back as if I don't know what you're doing. By the way, I'm here too, so I'm not here proselytizing, you know, but I do find it intriguing. And I think one of the things that is an opportunity for us as Christians, especially Methodists, is to talk about how do we teach people what responsible drinking is. 
right? That's part of the restraint piece that we see in the book of discipline. How do people know what it is? If we come to accept the fact that people are, in our culture in the United States, going to engage in alcohol consumption, are we helping people to learn and identify and enter into the option of responsible drinking? By and large, when the church doesn't touch this topic, just like sex, people are left to figure it out elsewhere. They're either going to hear about it from other Christian denominations, which may or may not be helpful, or they're going to go Google it. And God forbid you should start making decisions about how to act as a Christian based upon Wikipedia. Right? You need to start thinking about what it is that you're saying and how do you engage in it. Is it an alcoholic free-for-all? Or you know, are you controlling the flow of how the alcohol is? Is there an expectation that there's not going to be too much? You know, I have certainly been in more than my fair share of situations where alcohol degenerated the entire experience for me and for others. I have also been in experiences where there was something powerful and profound that happened there. More than once in my lifetime, I have been at a dinner table at a restaurant or in someone's home, and it just so happened that there was bread on the table and there was wine, and spontaneously all of us that were gathered were able to partake in Holy Communion because I'm able to do that. What an incredible experience that was. Now granted, I think if we had been serving grape juice, which I don't normally serve with prime rib, we would have had the same experience. We have to figure out what are we looking at. One of the things that shaped my life is that when I was in college, I was working at the Williamsburg Winery. Now, I was doing finances, but I got to see everything that it took for the creation of wine, especially good wine. I, I got to see that. You know, in his first miracle at the wedding of Cana, Jesus does something incredible. He's sitting there. His mother kind of urges him or in some cases nags him to help the bride and groom, because the wine has run out. And when the wine runs out, the party's over, the guests go home. Well, everybody was having a good time, and they didn't want to go home, so they needed something to drink. And so she says to him, the wine has run out. And Jesus is like, what does this have to do with me? And so she says to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, just do it, it'll be fine. So what Jesus does is nothing. He does nothing. If you go back and read the story, he doesn't do anything. He stays exactly where he is, and he says to the servants, those big jars over there, those giant jars that come up to here, I want you to fill them up. All right, now empty them. And they fill them up. He doesn't go over and do anything. He doesn't utter any magical words. He says, fill it up and take it out. Oh, and by the way, as you take it out, take it over to the sommelier over there, the biblical equivalent to the sommelier. Take it over there and let him try it. And the text says that they took it over there, and the sommelier is so amazed at the quality of what Jesus has just made. By the way, he made 120 gallons on the conservative side. 120 gallons. And the sommelier goes, wait a second, you got to get the groom over here. Hey, most people save the less good stuff for the end of the party, but you've saved the best for last. That's pretty amazing. I've never had, and this is really good wine. He's raving about what Jesus has really not done. And so we get in the story that not only did Jesus make wine, but he made a lot of it, and he made really good wine. And then if you look what we have to do to replicate that, it's incredible. I mean, it starts with you got to have rainwater, you got to have the, the grapevines, and their vines are so temperamental. Anything will kill your grapevines. Your vineyards are just waiting to die, not be fruitful. 
And so it took all this time to cultivate and they weren't ready. You know, the first few harvests you had to dump, you had to wait until the good stuff came up and then we had to harvest it and crush it. And then the real work started. Then you had to take the juice and you had to work on the fermentation and applying the sugars to it so that you would get good wine and not garbage wine. And then you had to pay for the fermentation process and you can have steel, but barrels taste better. And so, you know, they would go into all of this work and I got to see all of this. I mean, it would take us at least three years to get something decent out of a bottle. And I was just amazed every time I looked out my office window and saw the vineyards that Jesus did it like that. Put it in pour down. Done. But we can't do that. And the scriptures have plenty of places where they will teach you to appreciate good wine, but they also have places where they offer us implicit warnings. If you go back to Genesis 9, you can find out about the first winemaker. The first one to make a vineyard, according to Genesis, was Noah. And Noah came out of the ark and managed to win God's favor with this amazing barbecue. It's in there, read it. And then God's like, you know what, this barbecue's so amazing, I'm never going to do this again, because I kind of like you. And so God puts the rainbow in the sky to say, hey, this barbecue has forever transformed the world. And then, it's right after that, it says that Noah planted a vineyard, and he made some wine, and he promptly got drunk. And he did what some drunk people do, he passed out naked. It's in there. It's a great story. Genesis 9. If you go in there and you read it, you find out that he passes out naked in his tent, you know, his private little bedroom. And he passes out naked there, and then one of his sons discovers him naked. And then like most kids, you can't keep that to yourself. You have to get all your siblings to come and see for themselves. That dad's naked, drunk, passed out. And so you can go in, you can read the story. It's a really incredible story. And the lesson here is probably don't drink too much and pass out naked, drunk. But we often don't tell people that story. We don't recount that story. But here's something that we also don't focus on, that if you follow that story through, when Noah finally wakes up and he's really upset because he learns about the, the son that instigated everybody kind of mocking his naked drunkenness, and he says to him, you know, I'm going to lay a curse on you, and he lays a curse on that son, and hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of years later, people in this country, religious people in this country, would use that curse and that experience to justify the enslavement of African peoples. So if we don't think that drinking alcohol can impact people, we're kidding ourselves. Not only our own choice to drink alcohol, but what people see and think and retell about us drinking alcohol. So we have to decide, if we're going to engage with alcohol, are we going to do it with some thoughtfulness, some intentionality, and restraint? Are we going to do it in such a way that we encourage people to engage in a, in a way that enables them and empowers them and thanks them for saying no. But if they're going to engage it, is it modeling responsible, mature consumption? Or are we going to just say, none for anybody, and therefore start to make people feel guilty if they have some? Or are we going to say it's open season and it's on you if you can't control your liquor? All of these are options. All of these are positions that Christianity has taken over the years. And all of them are positions that we take right now somewhere in some church. But we are in a culture where people do die from alcohol. We are in a culture where people have powerful experiences in alcohol. Some of them are helpful. There are people that bond. There's a reason why we do a champagne toast at weddings. But each and every one of us has to make a decision about how we're going to engage it. 
And sometimes it's when you recognize somebody has an overindulged in alcohol, how you engage with that person. There have been plenty of times where I've watched somebody get drunk, and I think to myself, now what? Now what do we do? And I've tried to be the person that says, hey, why don't you stay here and hang out, and we'll get you home. We'll drive you home. I'll call you an Uber or a cab. You don't have to do it. It's okay. It's fine. You know, you go overdrink. It's okay. You know, not trying to make them feel guilty about it, because right then and there is probably not the time to run an intervention. I don't think it would be very effective if we start staging interventions over at Star Hill. But it's about how we interact with people when they're struggling and they're discerning. And even people who know incredible restraint and control have their moments where they lose control because we are all sinners. But we as the church have to decide how we're going to respond to that and what kind of grace we're going to show them and how does it feel. At 9.30, I did a children's time with the kids, and I was talking about how we're all getting ready to go back to school. They're going to go back to school on the 21st of this month. And I said, you know, and some of you are going to be going to school for the first time, and there's something called rules, right, because we have to talk about our behavior. And I said, do you like rules? And they were all like, no, I don't like rules. I said, why don't you like rules? And they started telling me, because you have to remember them. You have to follow them. You have to pay attention to what you're doing. And then if you make a mistake, then you have to worry about what happens next consequences. And they're focusing on it. I said, you know what? Rules are hard. Rules are hard. I said, so Jesus gives us a rule too. If our behavior is good, then it does no harm. If our behavior is a right and joyful thing, then it will help people instead of making them feel self-conscious or making them feel like they're unworthy and unlovable and unforgivable. If our actions are just and good, according to scripture, then it will be something that Jesus could get on board with, something that we could see Jesus doing. If our behavior is bad, if it is negative and hurtful, if it makes people feel like they have been attacked or it makes people feel like we are against them rather than for them, that we are here to lord over them rather than to serve them, then we're doing something bad. And we need to stop. And we need to reflect. And we probably need to do some reconciliation. But as Christians, we must do this constantly. And that's the thing that those of us who are striving to be disciples struggle with because it's work. It's mental work. It's spiritual work. And when you start involving the mental work and the spiritual work, you know there's emotional and physical work coming too. We know that it's going to be work. And we know that it's not going to be the simple answer all the time. Because if you are looking for the perfect role model in Scripture that never drinks, you have John the Baptist. And Jesus has a lot of wonderful things to say about John the Baptist. He actually says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for talking bad about him. But if you're also looking for an example of somebody that did engage with alcohol and had to take some fire because of it, then you can look at Jesus himself. And there's no easy answer. I wish I had an easy answer for you. I don't. I don't. I myself have recognized that there are seasons in my life where I definitely shouldn't be engaging in alcohol. I recognize that there are times in my life where, yeah, I might want to have some champagne and raise a toast to that bride and that groom. But it's incumbent upon each of us to figure it out. And if I went to a wedding and people said, hey, you know what, we're not going to drink, I wouldn't be like, I need to go find the ABC store. We're going to honor where people are. And the greatest thing we as Christians can ever do is say to somebody else, you know what, it's not about me, it's about you. What would make you most comfortable right now? How can I be hospitable to you? That's where we are as Christians. We are constantly those people that are asking, what does our God require us and what does this person need from me? And if we aren't asking those questions, then we're not identifying ourselves as a Christian. 
We have to constantly be asking that. And sometimes the situation changes. There have been plenty of times that I've been somewhere and someone has asked me for a drink and I looked at this and I went, I don't think this is a good idea. I don't think this is a good idea. I think you've had too many. I think if I give you a drink, this isn't going to go well. I think that if we start down this path, it's going to change what we're doing right now. And I think that we need to be fully focused. We need all of our faculties. What's happening here is holy, and we're not going to go there. But I've also been places where I've had incredible transformative conversation over a beer. I've witnessed people have incredible times of celebration. And unfortunately... The reason we have this conversation is because human sin takes something like wine and strong drink and makes it a catalyst for evil. If we could really control our sin, this wouldn't even be a conversation. But the last thing I'll say to you is this. When we are engaging in the consumption of alcohol or we're out proselytizing against it, whatever it is, people are watching. There are children and teenagers and adults that are watching what we do. And if we are misbehaving or if we are spewing hatred against people that are drinking alcohol, they're watching that. And they're thinking, these are either people that are hypocrites because they're out here abusing alcohol and, and getting all crazy and saying and doing hurtful things, or these are people that don't really want to engage with the culture and aren't going to like me just because I like having a beer every now and then. And maybe they think there's no place for me and that if I, if I do cave in and I have an alcoholic drink, that I'm somehow unworthy of being with them. I don't think that either of those two positions reflect Jesus Christ and salvation on the cross. But what that does reflect is that we have to ask the question. We have to discern. And we have to figure out for ourselves, for this day, what is it that God is asking? And then tomorrow, we will ask the same question again. Not just about alcohol. We will ask that question about everything. And that's why God said to us, I need to walk with you and you need to invite me in so that I can help you in these moments. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.